As senior pastor, Pastor Stan has an interesting task of preparing order of worship and sermon text for the months ahead of time and then to squeeze in some vacation time as well. And you have to think that sometimes you look at the texts that are going to be preached and when you can get away and there's some Sundays where you would just like not to be there. And not just a staycation, but someplace like Columbia where you're really far away. This might have been the occasion for a good time to be away. If you have Mark chapter 6, I'm going to read a passage this morning that's one of the dark parts of the gospel of Mark. It's one that we'd like to try to avoid in a Bible reading plan, to move our eyes from it and to go back towards the light and heartier parts. But just like a painting worthy to hang on the wall, the dark lines help us to see the light better. So my encouragement this morning as we hear from the scripture text, that we take in this story and with the faith that God gives us, see the grace of God in the midst of it. From Mark chapter 6, we hear these words starting in verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work within him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's have a moment of prayer this morning. God, we thank you for the scripture text and we affirm today that all scripture is God-breathed. It's all useful. And so today as we journey to a dark part of the scripture text, we ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and that you'd make us more like Jesus as we hear, as we proclaim, as we believe, as we practice the scripture text. I ask all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. 
Ginger and I are fans of a sitcom that's a bit underrated in our opinion. It's the sitcom New Girl. There might be a few fans of New Girl out there. There's a show on Fox. And just like other sitcoms, there are times where the key characters of those sitcoms learn an important lesson. And in one certain episode, Jessica Day, who's the main character of New Girl, learned a lesson about taking a stand. Uh, Jess is an environmentalist and she was disturbed one day when she went to her mailbox and found yet another paper copy of a menu of a local Asian restaurant. She'd just gotten one a few days before, so so she thought it was a, a waste and it was an infringement upon our carbon footprint in the world around us. So instead of just burying it deep within her soul, she marched down to that restaurant and went to have a word with the manager. And her appeal was provocative to the point where the manager took her advice that he wanted to give out less paper menus, but that came at a cost. It cost one employee their job, and so at the end of the day, the stand that Jess took cost somebody their job, and she now had a high-maintenance friend on her hand because she had to have her way. I think you and I have been in a place like that before, haven't we? We believed something so much, we took a stand and we felt like everyone would agree with us if they could simply hear our passion for this certain issue, if our argumentation could be airtight and perfect, if we could scrub it of all of the fallacies within an argument, if we could pound on the table often enough where our audience is so captivated that they take our advice and the world gets snapped back together. We soon realize what Jess learned that day. Sometimes taking a stand is a whole lot more difficult than we first imagined. Now, some of us love to take a stand. In fact, we check Facebook multiple times a day just to see what type of argument back and forth that we can get into on Facebook. We love to watch the notification bubble illuminate on our phones so we can go back and see the next opponent that we have in our argumentation on Facebook. I got a friend who's a, an, he's got an aggressive personality. He says, I've got a speech for everyone out there. I just need the opportunity to give them my speech. Now that's some of us. But there are some of us who are timid Some of us who break in a cold sweat if we have to ask the waiter if they could be reminded to bring our side of ranch that they forgot after our first couple of times of dropping a hint. We're timid. And we just say to ourselves, there are people just straight out in this world around us, but I don't want to do that. That's not my gift. That's not my job. I don't want to be judgmental. And so I'm just going to trust that in God's economy, he's going to find somebody else who's a bit more assertive to take on the task of to to take a stand. But nevertheless, at some point in our life, we're in a place where we have to make a stand. And sometimes it's on just the everyday coming and going of life. Perhaps we might have a friend who posts something wild with unbased claims on Facebook. And after the first couple of times, it's not so humorous. And we think to ourselves, not only are they adding to the disinformation that's being propagated out there, but it's kind of embarrassing to be their friends. Somebody should take them up on this introduce them to those fact-checking websites out there to check it before they post it. Some of us are in a neighborhood, we have neighbors with loud teenagers and they keep us up all hours of the night. And we don't know what happened. Those kids used to be really cute. They used to mow the grass for us and shovel our driveway and wave at us on the way to the mailbox. But now, them and all their buddies who get to stay at their parents' self well into their late 20s, are keeping us up late at night in their late night games of cornhole when we're trying to go to bed. And we say, so we say to ourselves, I love Jimmy and Johnny and, and, Johnny and Tommy 
but is it time to call the police and to report this instance? Some of us have a friend who's rude to a certain type of people. They have a bias and they have jokes that you don't think are very funny. Now, you don't want to lose their friendships. You don't want to say anything, but not only is it time for them to stop sharing those jokes, because not just because it's the 21st century, because it's also because it's the moral arc of the universe not to hold such claims, but ultimately because as their friend, it brings out the worst in them when they say these things. And you wonder, is it time to bring up the issue? Some of us, we dread going to family gatherings because we have that family member who loves to create chaos in the midst of calm. During the average family gathering, they're ready and loaded with that provocative line, that that rhetorical grenade that's rolled into a calm room that gets us all uptight and a little nervous about that conversation in the midst of our culture. You know which one I'm talking about. Which way the toilet paper should roll off the uh, wall? One that we keep on debating about and ones like it. Perhaps we have a coworker whose attitude dampens the mood of the office. When they're around, everybody tightens up. A conversation dispels when they move into the room, maybe because it's their quick temper or the fact that they hold court way too long in a short meeting and you all look at the out-of-office calendar and you long for the day that they add when their next vacation is so you can have a pleasant week in the office. And you think to yourself, maybe somebody should bring this person to the side and bring up the issues that cause tension in our office. Many things like this allow us to ask the question, when is it time to intervene and what's the most faithful and non-judgmental way to do so? But even more so, the church of Jesus Christ is sent into the world with a radical message, one that it doesn't receive right away. We don't receive the world as it is, but we engage it with the message of repentance. The very heart of our message is to call all people to change their ways, to remove the sin from their life, and to trust in Jesus as their Savior, which is a very difficult message to hear initially. So what does it mean to be the church and to take our stand in the midst of a culture that's not eager to hear the teaching of Jesus. Well, perhaps our text this morning can illuminate some of these issues and give us grace for the path forward. As we get to our text this morning, we actually get to look in two different places in King Herod's life. The first place that we get to see in the first few verses is his throne room. And there's report that's come back that there's some religious fervor in Galilee because of Jesus of Nazareth. And everyone's asking, how do we handle this? What is our message? And so this egomaniac, always wanting to be in control, King King Herod decides to get his messaging together, to get out in front of it so that everyone won't be afraid. There are different options out there. But Herod says, this is John the Baptist raised again from the dead. This is the same story, but a different chapter. We also see a window into his household Because we get this flashback, because all of us are begging to know, how did John's life end? We're not caught up to that. And so in a rare moment, the New Testament gives us a flashback, like in an episode of Lost. And we see what happened and the different circumstances why John came to his end. And it's a gruesome story, one that causes us to think in a thousand different ways and ask a thousand different questions. But perhaps the big idea that Mark is conveying at this point in his gospel is this, is that the task that John the Baptist had and the one that was also handed to Jesus was vital. God was doing a new thing in the world and people needed to know. But this vital task also came with great danger. And ultimately, it led 
to John being put down and it must have had a chilling picture of Jesus for his future about what might be ahead for him next. But we needed to have this at this part of the story because we've been distracted by all the miracles that Jesus is doing and all this great religious fervor that's resulting in the ministry of the disciples. We need to be reminded that at the end of this story, there's a cross that the Son of God has to bear. So in a way, Mark checks us back into the whole plot of the story. Everything is not rosy in the life of Jesus. But he also convinces us that this is what happens to the people of God from time to time. When we take our stand in the midst of a watching world, sometimes people receive it and sometimes people reject it. The way Mark tells this story, or our scholars tell us, is a way to remind us of how this has happened before, this is happening now, and it could happen down the road for those who desire to take a stand for, those, for the, the cause of Christ. So we're left with this question, should we take a stand like John? If this is what happens to John, if the powers that be, when they receive our truth, will they just stand against us and ultimately our truth goes nowhere? Is it even profitable for us as the church of Jesus Christ to take a stand? Well, it's in this moment that Mark is not just deconstructing, but he's also constructing something for us to consider. The first thing he wants us to consider is that Jesus' kingdom is not like Herod's kingdom. At the heart of the message of Jesus is a brand new kingdom, and so people begin to imagine, what type of king is Jesus going to be? What's he going to be like? And they have all these archetypes of kings, and what Mark does, he says, actually, Jesus' kingdom is upside down from all the kingdoms we've known to this point. What he wants to say in a subtle way to those who first heard this message And for us who hear the biblical message today is that there are certain people in power that we should not follow because of their way of life. This seems to be something that Mark is impressing upon us. He gives Jesus a chance to articulate what his kingdom vision's like in Mark chapter 10 sometime down the road. But for now, he wants to warn us not to give our allegiance to leaders like Herod. Quite briefly, if I can just share the problems with Herod's leadership, there's just a couple things I'd like to say. The first thing is this, is that Herod is dedicated to bearing the truth. The truth is that Jesus is, is promoting such religious fervor in Galilee, and so when the message, that anxious message comes back to Herod's chamber, he's got to come up with a different story. So he decides to hold on to a conspiracy theory it's, that it's the same old opponent John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now that might sound scary, someone being raised from the dead, coming back to revisit you and to wreak havoc upon your kingdom, but it's actually a comforting one because what Herod is saying underneath is, if we've taken care of John before, he poses no threat to us this time. So he buries the truth and he spins a conspiracy theory. The second thing he does, he justifies his lawless actions. The reason that John was arrested is because Herod broke the law. He broke a law that God had given in his covenant to his people, and John let Herod know about it. But this is something that Herod knew, but he decided he was going to do it anyways. Something that we know from ancient literature is that the Herodians were obsessed with their family brand, prone towards nepotism, and they didn't trust anyone. So when it came time for Herod Antipas to pick a spouse, he decided to pick someone who was familiar with the family brand so that he wouldn't have to look over his shoulder moment by moment with a stranger to see if someone new was going to undermine him. So he broke the law for the sake of his family's brand. Lastly, he was trapped in his destructive vices. In this one moment, in the middle of one of his parties, Herod nearly gave away half of his kingdom. 
This is not a leader who leads by principles, who is calm and cool-headed, but one who is whisked away by his vices, who is enslaved to his lusts. What Mark is telling us in the background is don't trust a leader who can't be steady in the midst of a time of chaos and turmoil. But considering all those things, we're left with a major question. Is there grace in a passage like this? And I want to tell us that there is grace in this passage. There's grace because John stands up in a very difficult moment. John knew the difficulty of taking a stand and speaking truth to power, but he does it anyway. But there's another subtle grace alongside of it that Herod would even take the time to hear John's message. Herod is so powerful and he's so busy that he doesn't have to listen to every street corner prophet in their message, but he listened to John. Because not only was John articulate, but he was a holy and righteous person. He had a gravitas in his preaching. Therefore, Herod had to take pause with John's words. It wasn't just the words that John said. He was the most articulate preacher out there, but he had a gravity about his ministry, which caused Herod to need to listen to try to understand what John was communicating to him and to the world around him. And I think that's an important point for us this morning that if you and I want to be stand takers, we need to consider that it's not just the words that we say that go into our message, but a stand that changes the world comes from an ecosystem of obedience and faithfulness. If we're just a talking head, if we're just a, a hot taker in this culture around us, no one is going to listen. We, we've been accustomed to sensationalism, but what truly moves the world are those who take a stand from a place of deep obedience, of discipline, of thoughtfulness, of nuance, and of gratitude, and of connection, and of grace, and of mercy, and of truth. If you and I want to take a stand today, if we want to change the world and speak our minds, that's fine. But just know it will go nowhere if it doesn't accompany an ecosystem of obedience and grateful work. This is what happened when Jesus was threatened by this same Herod. Herod came to bring an accusation against Jesus. We read about this in Luke's gospel. And Jesus' response accompanies this vision of taking a stand in the midst of faithful work. In Luke chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus replies to Herod's threat in this way. Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. What Jesus is saying in reply is this. He didn't say, well, let's go to Twitter and send out a Twitter storm in reply to Herod's threats. No, Jesus says, I'm gonna continue to bind up the brokenhearted and set the captive free. I'm gonna continue to affiliate with the disinherited. I'm gonna continue to excel in the ministries of mercy. And that in and of itself will be a message of confrontation and resistance against him. The world is full of talking heads. And to be honest, I think you and I are getting tired of them. And what we're thirsty for is someone who speaks from a wellspring of faithful and compassionate work. Father Richard Rohr said this about this type of appeal to the world. He says, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Let's keep that in mind the next time we want to speak our minds or raise our opinions to those around us. Perhaps the most loud and influential response we can give is a practice of the better, not just a speech that we have prepared from one who has authority of a person that we enjoy. 
Let's be honest, there's no shortage of stand takers today and there's no shortages of places where you can take your stand. You can take your stand on Facebook, you can take your stand on YouTube. There's this thing called TikTok out there. I don't know what that's all about. I think I'm missing out on something. But there's no shortage of ways to take a stand. What you and I need to consider is what's the most faithful way to take a stand in the world that we inherit today? Well, for those of us who are timid, who want to say it's somebody else's duty and job, I want to say this, and this is, going to, this is going to cause a sweat to break over us right now, but prepare for it. Sometimes the most sacred thing that we can do in life, maybe once or twice at least in our life, is to take a stand when no one else has been able to take a stand. We've seen this in the spirit of our age. We do have a lot of stand takers out there. We have a lot of talking heads out there, but we actually have a lot of people who are taking stands who are making great changes in the world around us. Take, for instance, Susan Fowler, who released a book recently this week called Whistleblower. Susan Fowler was um, an employee of Uber, and on her very first day of work, like she's not even got her email set up yet and all of her stuff in her office, she was harassed by her immediate manager. And she got the gist after a few weeks of working at Uber that she could not take her complaints, the ways in which her supervisors were breaking law to anyone who would listen. She began to compare notes to others who worked in the Silicon Valley. And she said, it's time for someone to take a stand and to tell our story. So she, she released a blog post with all the evidence of missteps in Silicon Valley. And it set the world on fire and it led to regulation change in organizational change in many of the companies in Silicon Valley. When she was asked why she did this, we expected the answer was gonna be, well, she's just one of these millennials looking for her 20 minutes of fame, trying to get on Colbert's late night show or something like that. But actually came from a different place. We learned from her past that she came from a Christian home. Her dad was a pastor, so she grew up hearing the teachings of Jesus, understanding that we're supposed to be peacemakers and sometimes making peace is speaking the truth. She's also a lover of philosophy, and so in a recent interview with NPR, she said these words, sometimes even the most quiet among us needs to consider what we need to offer the world in a way of taking a stand. That's what's at stake, because people are looking for a voice to articulate their pain. And who knows, maybe in God's economy, That might be our opportunity as we continue to follow Jesus. We look at the way in which the baseball world has been shaken by the scandal of the Houston Astros. A beloved team that for many years was called the Lastros because of all their losses in a given baseball season. But when they won the World Series in 2017, they captured America's hearts. People wondered how a team that was so bad got so good overnight and people just assumed that it was... The, the brilliance of the, the athletic ability of their players, and that definitely was in, in play. But in the offseason, Mike Fires, who's a pitcher who used to pitch for the Houston Astros, told us another story, that they were leveraging technology to cheat and to call pitches to prepare their batters in an elaborate scheme in order to hit the best pitches. That's why, ultimately, a piece of the puzzle, why they won the World Series in 2017. Imagine the hate mail this guy is getting. Hall of Famers calling him a snitch. But he knew deep within it was wrong. And he decided not to let the story go untold because baseball needs to have this in mind and they need to undergo some change in order to keep the game as pure as possible. 
So like them, sometimes those, the most timid among us need to realize that the most faithful thing we could do is to take our stand. But for some of us, we're easily triggered. We like to get into arguments. We, get, we take stands all the time. We've even pushed friendships away from time to time. We're scaring the kids sometimes with all of our venomous opinions that we share from time to time. What's the grace of God for us? What does Jesus require of us? Here's a couple things to consider this morning. The first one is this, is that we need to ask ourselves the question, is our stand ultimately that beneficial? Remember from the Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians a couple times, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 23, Paul is confronting a sentiment in the church in Corinth. There seemed to be a refrain of license in the church in Corinth. They felt like they could do whatever they want. And so Paul says in two different places, he quotes them by saying, I have the right to do anything. But Paul gives them a different category as Christians. Yeah, but is everything beneficial? We need to ask ourselves that question. It's something that Jess needed to ask, the question she needed to ask at her mailbox that day. Is the stand, is the article, is the opinion shared beneficial? Will it lead to progress in relationships and redemption in our midst? Or is it just something that's going to cause a rise out of someone around me? The second question you need to ask ourselves is, do we have the formidability to endure the mess? Every time we take a stand, it leads to a mess. It was that in John's life, it was that in Jesus' life, it's been any stand taker out there has had their world turned upside down every time they take a stand. Because the moment we take a stand, our opponents begin to go into action to try to find a way to undermine our argument. If they can't find a way to undermine our argument, they try to undermine our character. Our world is turned upside down. So if this is Stand Takers Anonymous in this room this morning, I implore you, friends, to be ready to ask yourself the question, can I handle the reaction to the stand that I take? But ultimately, are we prepared to act? I think voices that are marginalized in our culture today are only those who like to give opinions and don't engage in the slow, meaningful work of compassion. So along with the stand that we take, are we willing to act in obedience for the outworking of its claims. But ultimately, this passage gives us grace this morning because Jesus had a decision to make after this story. When he heard the news that John the Baptist was harshly treated and was brought to his end by King Herod because of his stand that he took, I'm sure Jesus had a moment of pause. Jesus could have said, I don't like how this picture ends at the end of this trail. It's time for me to do something else with my life. But in this moment of reflection, I have to imagine that Jesus says, no, it's important to continue on this trail. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. It was the delight of the Son of God to enter into harm's way for your sake and for my sake. So this morning, if any of us are sitting in a place of self-condemnation and shame and guilt, if we tell ourselves again and again that we don't measure up, that we're not worthy to be received into God's family, Hear the good news this morning. Jesus understood that. He understood the challenges ahead for him and he went to the cross anyway because God so loved the world that he would give his only son so that all of us who believe may not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you that you're a good and generous God. 
And Lord, we thank you that for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross and you scorned its shame. You knew the danger ahead and you still journeyed forward. So God, I pray that fresh words of grace would wash over our lives today, that we find ourselves in amazing grace and that we'd be transformed because of it. And as we think about our lives and think about this world, may you move within us to be stand takers for Jesus and may the world hear good news as we stand for good news. I ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.